Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we start the show today, I want to tell you about an upcoming fundraising training I'm going to be attending. This live online workshop is called Seven Figure Fundraising, and it's all about growing major donor support. They go through the mindset you need for making seven-figure asks and help you build your own donor pitch. Then they teach you a step-by-step system for growing existing major donor support and finding new major donors. The great thing about it is that this workshop is taught by a nonprofit CEO, so you're getting advice on what works today. The live online workshop is for one afternoon a week for three weeks. It starts on February 16th, and you can register at sevenfigurefundraising.com. I'm excited to be attending, and I've asked their team to extend a discount to all my listeners. All you have to do is use the code RAINMAKER at checkout for a 5% discount off your ticket. I encourage you to attend with me this live online seven-figure fundraising workshop starting on Feb 16. To sign up, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER for a 5% discount. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Hey, everyone. I'm here today with my new friend, Bert Rosen of Knox Area Rescue Ministries. Bert has been the CEO here at CARM for almost 18 years, and prior to joining this ministry, Bert spent 17 years in various leadership roles uh, with Prison Fellowship. It's only fitting that today we spend some time talking with Bert about his leadership journey. Bert, welcome to the show today. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for having me, and it's a joy to be here spending some time with you today. Uh, grateful for your time and your insights today. Before we get into our leadership conversation, I'd love if you just take a few minutes, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about Knox Area Rescue Ministries. Sure. Um, uh, I have been the president and CEO here at Knox Area Rescue Ministries since May of 2003. That was after 17 years with Prison Fellowship Ministries. And prior to that, I directed a small halfway house in the inner city of Miami, Florida, working with men and women who were getting out of prison. My, uh, my, my journey, it cannot be told without my journey to Christ and the role that uh, Carolyn, my, my wife, uh, has played in all of that. So Carolyn and I have been married since January 1st, January 13th, I'm sorry. Oh, that's not good. Since January 13th of 19. 19- we won't let her listen to this. Don't worry. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So I became a Christian, gave my life to Christ on January 1st, 1973. Carolyn and I were married two weeks later. She and I, product of the 60s, had lived together for two years before we got married. She is also Jewish. She became a believer before I did, felt convicted and said, Bert, I can't uh, continue to live this way. We're either going to have to get married or we're just not going to live together anymore. Hmm. Let me pray about that. Okay, let's get married. Um, I, I had given my life to Christ, but Carolyn and I were fixed up on a blind date when we were 16 years old. Um, we have been together ever since, and I, I'm no spring chicken, so I will turn uh, 69 this week. So we've had been together a long, long time. Uh, Carolyn was instrumental in me coming to Christ. Uh, she and I have been on this journey together since that time. Blessed to have four children, two boys, two girls. Matthew and Jeremy are the two oldest, Anna and Rebecca in the in that order uh, descended. And it has just been a, a joy to walk the Christian walk 
It has been a challenge to walk the Christian walk, but I couldn't be more blessed to have a loving, caring wife uh, who has walked that journey with me. And so uh, if we go back in all of that, I had a manufacturing background. The company that I was working with was purchased by a businessman who wanted to move the company to Lima, Peru, offered me that job. I declined and he immediately fired me. Wow. Told me that um, if you're not going to move to Lima, I have to hire and train someone here who will. So you're out, they're in. That's actually what led me to begin volunteering at the small halfway house that I mentioned, uh, where I would end up spending a considerable number of my early ministry years there. So that took me from the halfway house. That's when I left and joined Prison Fellowship Ministries. That journey took me from Miami, Florida, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was the tail end of those years when I was beginning to get the nudge that ultimately would bring me to CARM has been around since 1960. It was founded by a handful of small Christians in the area who felt like they needed to have some response to the men and women, the drunks, the bums, the winos, if, if you will, that um, were ending up on the streets not far from here, where the Greyhound bus station and, and the train station both were. What was happening is the, the vagrants, if you will, uh, were now sleeping on the streets. They were going up and knocking on the doors of churches who didn't want to let them in, uh, understandable way back when, even understandable to an extent today. But as a result of that, they started what became Knoxville Union Rescue Mission. Over time, the ministry continued to grow, and it became Knox Area Rescue Ministries as my predecessors had developed a few more programs that took it from being a traditional rescue mission to something a little bit larger. And as it grew from being Knoxville area down to, I mean, Knoxville Union, it became Knox area, signifying the expansion of the area into some of the surrounding counties. I joined the ministry in May of 2003. We are on a July, June fiscal year. So two months after my arrival, we would finish the year nearly $700,000 in the red two thrift stores losing a combined $100,000 a year, no direct response uh, mail program to speak of, no major donor program to speak of, and that was my jumping off. Today, from what was that original ministry that was started way back when, we have 200 beds for men who need a place to stay, 103 beds for women who need a place to stay, and a robust assortment of programs that are designed to interve uh, intervene at every level at which a person might come through our doors. Uh, we receive no government funding, no United Way funding. Uh, so everything that we're able to do by God's grace is a result of a staff who hustles, uh, <laughs> a generous donor community, and some uh, enterprises that we've started that have worked well for us. Well, thank you for that uh, background. Let's let's get into our, uh, our leadership questions here. So the first one I want to go over with you is, I'm curious to know, you know, if there were other key influencers in your personal leadership journey um, and that you can point to and say, you know, the, these people were important in my journey and here's what I learned. Do you have any yeah, so examples like that? Three people okay. immediately, immediately come to mind. Uh, first, Carolyn, my wife. And now you say, okay, so how is it that your, your wife becomes so important in your leadership journey? Well, you know, for most of us in leadership, let me say that differently, Andrew, in my leadership experience, 
you know, we've often heard that the, uh, the corner office is a, is a lonely place to be. <clears throat> and it is. And so in my experience, and I have found this true to be other leaders where I have gotten close to them relationally, you have to be what you need to be in your organization. Sometimes that's lonely. Sometimes that's painful. And so uh, a loving, caring wife like Carolyn, who's on the receiving end at home, she, she will listen. But the reason Carolyn has been so helpful in shaping the journey is that Carolyn doesn't tell me what I need to hear, what I want to hear. She tells me what I need <laughs> to hear. So she will be perfectly honest. And so if I'm expressing something that relates to my leadership or something that I'm grappling with, and I share that with her, you know, it would really feel good for her to say, hey, Bert, that's wonderful. I think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. But so she has shaped me in that way. And if I were to tell you in front of her today, she'd say, no, I haven't. But she has. The second is Chuck Colson. Um, I, I had the opportunity to work with Chuck. And, um, uh, you know, Chuck was just an amazing, amazing man. Anyone who's read any of the books, any of his books who knows that. But, you know, one of the things that I learned from Chuck, especially in the face of opposition, was uh, that I got to stand for what I believe in. Mm. And as a leader, and, and especially facing that now, where we get pressed on all fronts, uh, particularly as I tell people, Andrew, that uh, the assault on the church and mainline Christianity and what we believe may be one of the most significant challenges that I face in, in my era of ministry mm. now. Second, guy by the name of Tom Pratt. Uh, Tom um, was the uh, chairman of the board at Wheaton College. He was a wrestling coach. He was the senior vice president of research and development for the Herman Miller Company, uh, which is the manu uh, furniture manufacturing company. Tom came in as president while I was there. And uh, uh, Tom made sure that two things were a part of my leadership, even though he didn't specifically say it. Number one, walk around, walk around. The second thing that goes with that walking around, and uh, I spoke to him, oh, maybe a year or two ago, and he says, Bert, you never got it quite right. Well, whatever it was, um, it was every sound of the sail means something to the sailor. Hmm. Tom had a home in Michigan as well as in Northern Virginia. And so he would often remind me that every sound of the sail means something to the sailor. And of course, as a yachtsman, uh, what he was talking about is when you're out on the water and you hear the wind hitting in the sails, every sound of that sail is telling the skilled skipper what's going on. So he always encouraged me in my leadership, pay attention to the sounds of the sails. They're telling you things. So those three, Carolyn, Chuck, Tom Pratt, um, um, really significantly influenced my journey and how I pay attention to things today. Oh, that, that's great. All three really interesting. And for, for different reasons, I, I love, uh, I love all of that though. Thank you. Um, 2020 has been a, was a hard year for a whole lot of leaders, you know, and, and so it's been something I've been reflecting on over the last couple of weeks as we started in 2021 and, and really thinking about crisis and how leaders react in crisis and how we learn around that. I'm curious to know if you can uh, share with us what your most significant leadership crisis has been uh, and, and what you learned from it. Well, I think I've had so many of them, it's hard to figure out uh, <laughs> uh, which one has, has been most significant. But uh, I did think about a couple. 
Uh, one, I found that there was a way of operating a certain culture that existed inside the organization. Now, for an organization that does what CARM does, you, your, your ministry programs are your lifeblood. Yes, you need to raise money. Yes, you need to pay the bills and all those other things. But if the primary reason that you're here is to bring, if you'll pardon that expression, a programmatic intervention, a ministry to the folks that are coming through your doors, I realized that there was something wrong in our programs. Question was, I was a minority. I was relatively new to CARM. And so sniffing around, um, uh, I came to the conclusion that this was not one that could be remedied by coaching people, could not be remedied by taking little tweaks. I had no choice but to clean house. And so I made the very, very difficult decision to dismiss the entire program staff in one fell swoop. Wow. I lost in that two people that I would have preferred not to lose. But they were so convinced that they were going to be a part of what was happening that um, they went ahead and found other positions. But everything else I, I needed to do, um, and it was a leadership crisis. I was facing a showdown. And what would later occur is one of the people that was affected by that um, went directly to the chairman of the board, began to do those things that, uh, at least from my impression, were uh, rooted in sour grapes. And the board chair did not act the way I thought a board chair should have acted in all of that. And result was I, I have a leadership challenge and it's like, everybody's waiting. It's fourth and goal. Everybody wants to see what are you going to do? Uh, and, and so uh, that was a pretty significant challenge. And you know, kind of what I learned on that is that um, there's a point in time at which I needed to be decisive and I needed to act. This was not one where I could just sit around mulling it for an indefinite period of time because a cancer was growing and it was growing very quickly. And if I didn't make a decision act, um, I was going to be hurting the hole and I couldn't let that happen. So that's, that's a big one. Um, I, I'm curious if we can go just a little deeper on this one. As you made that decision, what was the fear in the back of your head that the, the story you might've been telling yourself about, you know, if this goes wrong, you know, how, how did you navigate that and, and the, you know, being a new leader, um, being up against a, a, a larger contingent of people who had a different perspective? Yeah. How did you um, muster the, the energy and the resolve to do that, even when it would have been such a hard decision to make? When I was at a church in Miami, uh, we took a class and we had to memorize the book of James verbatim, word for word. Okay. And, um, one passage in James, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. <laughs> he will gladly tell you. But when you ask, expect him to answer. And don't be like the wind and the sea, driven and tossed. Don't be the waves of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, so to speak. And so I thought, what are the consequences here? If I'm wrong, I'm going to get dismissed. I'll be looking to, to serve somewhere else. But if I'm right, I will have changed the trajectory of the ministry. And, uh, you know, there, uh, again, games on the line, fourth and goal. Uh, you, if you make the right call, the coach is a hero. If you make the wrong call, you're the goat. And they'll be, uh, <laughs> you know, you'll be looking uh, for, for another job uh, pretty quickly. Right. Well, I think deep down, it's like, God, this is bigger than I am. Help me make the wise choice here. And then help me deliberate through it in such a way so that I can minimize the damage, minimize the impact, 
but I'm not going to be able to live with myself if I tolerate this and just let it keep on going. I sought the counsel of one other person inside the organization. Um, I'm now here 18 years. She is still here. She's been here 20 years. Wow. Okay. I went to her and I said, Cynthia, I don't understand what's going on here, but I need to make a decision. I value your counsel. Am I making a mistake here? And she looked at me and she said, no, I just wondered how long it would take you. <laughs> so at, um, at that, that, that was what I needed. Uh, I bet, all. yeah. So, you know, you had asked for a couple. Um, and, and then the, the second one, Andrew, was uh, it was not too long ago where we were facing a significant financial shortfall. Half a million dollars with 30 days left, where if I didn't make it, um, we were going to have both a cash issue and a budget issue. And I was going to have no choice but to lay people off. And I couldn't bear the thought of laying someone off. And so a couple of times in my experience, there's a point in time where the leader needs to step in. Even though others are involved, you say, I, I got to take this one. Give me the ball, coach. I need to take this in, and run with it. And um, so you think about that. Uh, you, you're, you're familiar with a knee-jerk response. If I toss to you, the, you, you know, you're immediately going, so what was my knee-jerk response in that? Was it to trust in myself, to go after my own ingenuity, or was it to go and say, God, if you don't go before us on this, the stakes are high. Again, help me to hear with your ears, feel with your eyes, and feel, see with your eyes and feel with your heart what I'm supposed to do here. And so, you know, you make a gamble. Uh, just like uh, we actually did, it was very similar to what happened uh, last March with COVID. And uh, we, we do something called the President's Gathering. Uh, we've been doing it every year since my first year here. And it's grown into a significant event, both in terms of the donors that attend, the relationships that are built, and the dollars that it generates for the ministry. Well, our COVID hit here in March. We were scheduled to do our event at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, just shortly afterwards, and we had to make a decision. Do we go or do we cancel it? Now, at the time, the state of North Carolina had not yet declared a state of emergency. So force majeure was not kicking in yet. But we're looking at that and saying we have to make the right decision based on our staff who would be attending based upon our donors who were going to come. And we're just gonna to have to live with whatever that looks like and say, okay, God, do I really trust in you? Do I really trust in you that if we cancel an event that's scheduled to generate a million dollars with 60 days left in the fiscal year, do I believe you are who you say you are? Do I believe you'll do what you say you will do? And so that prayer, that moment talking with the team, guys, I don't know how it looks. We're going to have to cut this. We're going to have to do a ready, fire, aim, cancel the event. And then we're going to have to trust that either we won't lose the money on the event, we won't lose the money for the speakers, and that somehow we will offset that to finish the fiscal year where we need to finish. And we did. What would later end up happening is we did the right thing for the right reasons, placing people and their health and well-being over the fundraising event. And again, it's leadership making a decision that um, 
for me, and, and here's what I tell people here, we are not a democracy. I'm a benevolent dictator. <laughs> and so there are things where we put it to the team table for a vote. Let's everybody weigh in on this and see if we can come to consensus. But that is different from me saying, I have to make the decision. This is my call. I need your wisdom. I need your advice. But at the end of the day, I need to make the call. Mm -hmm. That's what's happened with that particular event. Because what if we do this? Uh, you know, all the stuff that goes back and forth with that. And um, so in all of that, you know, you learn to trust your gut. Trust God. Trust your gut. He speaks to you. And when all is said and done, there are those lonely moments for a leader, uh, or at least in my leadership, where others can inform. Others can push and control and do what they do, but the decision rests solely on the leader to make the best call. And uh, I find that um, I actually get energized in, in all of that. Maybe that's why I like being a baseball catcher. You know, I, I love being in all the plays. Wait, you were a catcher? I was a catcher. I was a catcher for 12 years for the exact same reason I enjoyed it. So I love that connection. <laughs> yeah, cool, <laughs> we'll, cool we'll have stuff. to talk about that on our next face-to-face -face visit. Yeah, we'll do it. So. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, the, the values that are most important to you as a leader. Integrity, trust, transparency. Um, and, and so, you know, in thinking of that, I remember making a comment to um, a small group of our employees. One of the things that we do, and I share this only in, in the context of the question, not because I like bragging about it. Um, oh, I don't mind bragging about it a little bit, but you know, I'm, I'm mindful that pride comes before a fall, which is why we don't do press releases on it. But we've been a part of Best Christian Workplace Institute um, surveys probably for the last 15 years or more. And so when you take that survey, it's done by all your employees, and we've been fortunate that we've had 100% participation and that um, uh, we, we went from being really, really low to working our way up to achieving best Christian workplace. We held it for good and then we lost it. And it troubled me that we lost it. And so one of the things that you do after you get the consolidated results is you can go do focus groups and, and do those other things. So I chose to do some of the focus groups personally. I wanted to hear what we were doing wrong. How is it we went from where we were to where we are? And so I remember being in the boardroom with a group of eight employees. And I remember saying to them that, you know, with, with regard to the values, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I like to be liked. Who doesn't like to be liked? I'd love it if you work to Andrew and you say, hey, but he's an okay guy. I kind of like him. But if you don't like me, I can live with it. <laughs> but if you question my integrity, if you question my transparency, if you question my integrity and trust, that's painful. So I can live without you liking me, even though I wish you did. But it pains me to think that you don't trust me. Mm -hmm. And I would never want a car employee to say, I just don't trust him. That, that, that would be the kiss of death. So trust, transparency, integrity, uh, and this idea that uh, what drives me in all of it is to treat each person with the dignity and the respect that they deserve because they were created by God and they've chosen to serve here. And so if I put all of those together, those, those are the things that shape me. Those are the values that are really, really uh, important to me. I don't want everybody to agree with me. 
Um, in fact, if, if everybody agrees with me, then we're having a different conversation. Uh, we, we need an iron sharpening iron inside the walls of the organization. And so valuing and embracing those things. And, and my hope is that when, when my time is over, someone will look back and say, you know, Bert, he had some pretty harebrained ideas. Some of them flew, some of them not so much. But he always fostered creativity. He fostered innovation. He gave us room to fail, but he always treated us with respect and dignity. You never had to wonder where Bert was coming from, and never ever did you wonder whether or not you could trust him. Hmm. Yeah, makes good sense. You've already talked quite a lot about this, but let's you know maybe have another thought on it. I, I'm I'd love to get your perspective on the role that your faith plays in your overall approach to leadership. I think what it does is it. Um, it compels me to seek and honor God in, in, in how I lead um, so that I respect and I honor others. But um, I don't remember if I shared this when you, you and I were together, but I have often shared when I have an opportunity to talk about my journey. Um, I make reference to the old TV show, Leave It to Beaver. Okay. So do you remember Leave It to Beaver? I do remember. Yes. We did not okay. talk about it when I visited, though. Okay. So if, if I speak to a group, and I say, how many of you remember Leave it to Beaver? You know, the hands go up. And if I say, so who was the most despicable character on that show? They don't even have to blink. Eddie Haskell. I was Eddie Haskell. <laughs> so, so if you look in my pre-days, I would steal from you. I would undermine you. I would talk about you behind your back. I was the antithesis of who it is that Jesus would ultimately shape me into. <laughs> And so if I look at those before days and, and those after days, once my faith came into play, first of all, it changed me. And so when we think about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, God transformed my mind and renewed it so that I think more of his thoughts more than the way that I used to think. How can I, how can I get by? How can I take advantage of you? Now it's how can I serve you? And so uh, that's really what has shaped it all. But I, I dare say, you know, being raised Jewish, I, I didn't get bar mitzvah. I got thrown out of every Hebrew school I went to before that before that ever occurred. But being Jewish wasn't a faith for me. It, it didn't drive how I lived. Jesus came in, and I wasn't looking for a Messiah to complete my Jewish roots. I was looking for a Savior. I was lost and dying. So now, those who have been forgiven a lot, owe a lot. Those who've been through those things. And, and so my way of allowing my faith, well, let me say that differently, because I don't allow my, my faith to do anything. <laughs> my, my faith just drives me uh, to do that, because each day I'm focused on, God, how do I serve you? And, and I was chatting with my daughter the other day, and then I'll, I'll wrap up uh, that comment with this. I was telling her that in the early days of coming to Carn, so now we're talking 18 years ago, a lot of my time was spent in the hallways. I got to know the people that were coming through our doors. Well, now there's a lot more people coming through our doors, but we also have a lot more employees. My ministry shifted from being to the poor and the homeless and the needy to those who serve the homeless, the poor, and the needy. My ministry is to the team here. And if I can be Jesus to them so that they in turn can be Jesus to those that are coming through our doors, then that, that's what floats my boat now. And so the faith drives me to be the best that I can be to reflect excellence in what we say, what we do, and how we do it because of who it is we serve. That's beautiful. Okay, thank you. Talk about 
how the last year, you know, COVID, uh, the country's racial tension, what's going on in the economy, how has all of that changed you as a leader? You know, I, I thought about that when I, when I saw that question. And my first thoughts was, what's wrong with me? Why have I not been so severely affected? And I thought, if I'm not being severely affected, is it because my faith is that strong? Well, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. <laughs> have I put a wall of protection around myself? Have I become numb to all of those things that are going on? Now, by contrast, if my wife and I, so I'm a news junkie. And um, so if my wife and I are sitting down watching the local news here at six, and then it goes over to NBC Nightly News and, and we watch that. I'm watching the news and I'm thinking how sad it is. But my wife's a different case altogether. She's getting very, very angry. But it's a righteous, it's a righteous anger that she's getting. And um, so I thought, so how has it changed me for a second? I don't know that it has changed me, but what it has made me do, it's made me listen a little bit more closely, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and a little more analytically. You know, in uh, uh, I believe it is in Rogerian counseling. The question that gets asked, the first question is, what do you want? The second question is, what do you really want? <laughs> so in that, what's Andrew saying? What's he really saying? And so I think it has changed me in that way. Now, behavioral, I've had to do some things to help Carm navigate through. But from a personal standpoint, I, I think more often than not, my prayer has been creating me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me as I listen to the rhetoric out there. And I'm, I'm in a group that prays every Monday morning. It's, you know, you're looking at the presidential things, you're looking at the race, all those things that you're talking about. And what I keep hearing is talking about what others should do, what others mm. should be doing. And I'm saying, no, God, create a, create a clean heart in me. Renew that right spirit within me. I'm sickened by what I see going on around me, but I can't tell you that it's changed to me. Um, I don't think I'm doing a good job of answering that question, but but I'm I'm fumbling for an answer. It's funny because to some degree, I think I feel the same way. I, I you know, I look at some other leaders uh, in our sector, and I see some who have made massive changes to the way that they approach the world, and and others who appear paralyzed with fear or determined to do X or Y. And, and I'm kind of in the same boat where, you know, I, I've, I've decided to stay the course, right? Um, and yes, there are things about all of this that, that are sad and terrible and detrimental. But, you know, I've, I've also found that there's hope and that the less I waver, the more impact I can continue to make. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. And so in, in thinking about those things, um, uh, if we go back to, you know, we, we had some interesting times during COVID and all of that. Um, COVID made me operate a little safer. I've washed sure. my hands more than I ever have in my life. And whoever <laughs> thought I'd be walking around with a mask. But the birth that was there before all this racial tension is the same birth that's there now. Sure. Trying to um, better understand the plight of individuals. Um, so I find that I can understand even if I don't agree in all of that, but I don't feel like I've 
come out of this. Well, we're not done with it yet, but none of it. You know, I said, you know what? I, I feel like my whole outlook on life has changed. I just, I can't. But when I listen yeah. to others around me, I feel like maybe it almost feels a little bit like survivor's guilt. Like maybe I'm missing something uh, along the way because I don't seem to be reacting the same way. But I believe God is on the throne. His plan is unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to be. So why am I all, now I still get bent out of shape when people do things. There's no, there's no question about that. But in the grand scheme of things, um, you know, I'm mindful, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. But now know I that he saves his anointed. I mean, those are the things that occupy my mind. And in this working out of my own salvation with fear and trembling, to have gone through a transforming of my mind, as Romans talks about, there's always room for growth. There's always room for change. There's always room for you to have a different opinion of something. But that's a change of mind. It hasn't really changed uh, who I am in, in right. all of that. But but there has one. There's been one passage that has um, stood out rather large for me in this, and it's what I have continued to tell myself. And um, it's from Habakkuk chapter three, right towards the end there. And it was three kind of catchphrases, even though yet I for he. And so if we were to go back and take a look at that, I've got those words written on my whiteboard that you can't see. They're there when I wake up in the morning. So Habakkuk's looking out. He's looking at the fig tree, even though all the fig trees are withered, even though everything around me looks bad. That's what he was saying. This doesn't look so good. He says, even though that's the case, yet I, what's that? Yet I will praise him. Why? Because as he causes my feet like a deer to go up into the high places. And so as I have found myself since March, God, even though yet I for you, even though yet I for you, um, it has sustained me in a way that I can't really explain other than God's word does what God's word does. For sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, let's see. Okay. The next question I, I want to throw at you is, you know, if you were advising other leaders, what would you say are the most important one or two things that a leader needs to do every day? Pray, listen, check your motives. If you're around people like, like I am, walk around a lot. Relationships with the troops. Love that. How do you develop other leaders? One is I, I spend time with them. I, I think there's no more valuable thing than you can do than to spend time. So, and it's the quality of the time, not necessarily the quantity of the time, but both, both is pretty good. Allow members of the team to dream dreams. Hmm. You're, not, you're not the only dreamer. Let me give you room to succeed and let me give you room to fail. So this idea of Burt Rosen, Messiah, it, it doesn't exist. And so um, I'll send you articles, but I won't just send you an article. I'll send you an article and I say, hey, take a, take a look at that little spot right there. And then when you get a chance, give me a buzz. Tell, tell me what you see in there. And so those little nuggets, those little seed zones uh, are investments in the relationship. And it's, um, it's investment in developing the leaders that are here. But, you know, once you, if I go back to um, integrity and trust and transparency, if I have operated well as a leader, I'm not thinking, well, how am I going to be a good leader? I'm trying to, but I do want to be a good leader, but how am I doing those things? And so if, if in all of that, um, I can send a book your way that works, 
that's great. If I can spend time with you, that's great. If I tell you my door is always open, you don't have to call Kathy, my assistant, to schedule something. She'll make it easier, but she's not a gatekeeper. Then, then what begins to happen is you will begin to open up to me because I'm opening up to you. It's a reciprocal relationship. And what that has done, at least in my case, is allowed me to hear and see and experience below the surface. So that when a leader tells me my family's crumbling, I didn't intend it to happen that way. It's just happening. That allows me to be able to do something more. I, I want to be careful how I say this. It's going to say more than just pray. That sounds like um, you know, <laughs> I'm, 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 te I'm teetering it. But what I want to do, I want to come by your side. Uh, we have a woman on our staff who learned this morning that her 21-year-old grandson was murdered. Oh, wow. Someone came in the house to rob him. And um, I guess he approached them. They weren't expecting They shot him, killed him. 21 wow. years old. Wow. And um, so what's my, let me call Cynthia. I am so sorry. How can we help? Yes, I'm going to pray. How can mm -hmm. we help? Yeah. And so if nothing else, I wanted Cynthia to know that she's not going to get an email from me. Right. She's not going to get a text from me. She's going to get a personal call, however brief it is, because the relationship transcends all that stuff. And when all is said and done, Andrew, I think the way you develop other leaders you spend time with them, you model for them, you're transparent with them, and you, and you let them see that side of you that says, I don't have to have this big facade on that makes it look like I have it all together uh, when I don't. Now, I, I know there's the right boundaries that, that one has to draw, so I'm not sure about that. So yeah. that, that's just, that's Burt Rosen style. So follow up to that. One of the things you mentioned early in that response is giving people room to fail. I think in the nonprofit sector, often there's such a fear that, you know, well, if we do something and experience failure, that puts, you know, we, we've failed with donor dollars. We've failed with services to people who desperately need it. Um, so failure isn't really an option in a lot of people's minds. Can you talk a little bit more about your perspective on that and how you help your uh, emerging leaders navigate that understanding? Yeah. First of all, um, I think it depends on one's definition of failure, okay. um, but um, failure is giving up. And um, uh, so we tried something, it didn't work, we'll try it again, we'll, we'll do it a little bit different. Um, we make mistakes along the way, we've had starts and stops all, uh, along the way. Uh, but, but this idea of um, looking at new ways of doing things, innovation cannot occur where people don't have the luxury of making mistakes. And so because we consider our, I consider myself to be an innovative leader, I consider myself to be an experimenter, and I encourage the staff to experiment. But Andrew, if you experiment one time, and it turns out to be a mitigated disaster, and I come back, how I respond to you has everything to do with whether you get back up and try it again with confidence, or you say, uh -uh, burn me once, that's not going to happen. So um, we, we try and do those things uh, that allow all of our staff to um, dream a little bit, try ideas. I keep a Burt Rosen fund, uh, if you will, okay. that, that, that funds innovation. So that you say, Burt, I got a great idea. I'd love to try it, but it's not in the budget. Yeah, so let's take a look at this. Let's have a conversation. What's it look like? How's it going to advance the ministry? So on and so forth. And um, when all is said and done, 
um, uh, hopefully, you know, that'll work well. We're finishing up, I wanna be mindful of, of your clock. Sure. Um, we're finishing up right now on something was one of the most fun things I have done in years. And it's, it was organic. So here, here's the quick hit. My board chair and I are having a conversation and we were talking about some of the financial blessings that had been coming our way shortly. And we're talking about where we put those funds so that they work for us, storehouse principal and everything else. And uh, in the conversation, we said, yeah, but wouldn't it be great to take some of that money and see some new ministry opportunity come out of it? So one line of thinking, okay, let's take it to the senior team. Let's put some people to the table, so on and so forth. Uh, I didn't do that. Now, I'd love to tell you this was a brainchild and it was well thought out, <laughs> but it was organic and it's spontaneous. You remember the old TV show, The Millionaire? Uh-huh. My name is Michael Anthony. I represent the late John Ferris for Tipton, who had the crazy habit of giving away a million dollars. So I sent that clip out to our entire staff. I said, what would you do? if you were given a million dollars to advance the cause of Christ on behalf of God? Well, the end result, 34 employees generated 41 ideas. Okay. Well, now you have those ideas, so now what? So I recruited five board members as judges. Nobody knows who they are. Their job was to take the 41 ideas, get it down to five. Now, every employee who submitted an idea in the first week of the two-week window got a $50 Amazon card. Everyone who submitted in the second week got a $25 Amazon card. And anybody who collaborated with someone else and submitted a joint idea got an extra $50 Amazon <laughs> card. So what, what did it cost me? Five, $600. But the buzz in the hallways, hey, I got this Amazon card just for putting an idea in. Oh, and I got one just for, you know, so all yeah. of that buzz. So now it has come to a place where the 41 ideas have now been culled down to the top six. Okay. The six are now being matched with our grant writer who will work with them to help shape into a maximum three-page proposal that will go back to the judges. So I'm getting coaching, I'm getting interaction, I'm getting all the stuff that's going on. And then um, the judges will have to take the six and pare it down to three. The three will be given a bucket of money <laughs> to go do do, do the, uh, the rationale, do the justification, uh, do the feasibility work, because you're going to have one month to do your feasibility work, and then you're coming back in front of the shark tank, although <laughs> it, it's, it's the doves. But um, the idea is you're not, if this was us, Andrew, you would be presenting your idea for what you think is the next million dollar idea. If you needed it, you would have gotten coaching to write your proposal. And now if you need coaching on the presentation of your idea, you're going to get that as well. What came out of that is 41 fundable ideas that if you were a grant writer, you, you'd be chomping at the bit to have your hands on these Absolutely. ideas. Absolutely, yeah. I've gotten the cross-pollination from all of this stuff. And you know what? Every idea was worthwhile. Every idea recognized, but only one person, maybe two, because it's the board. I mean, they can always uh, (laughs) kind of override me there. But here's the idea. Um, People are buzzed. When people are invited to share their opinions, when people are invited to speak to the organization, you get benefit of that. But, you know, so often um, in hierarchical models, it's the senior team that sits down. Let's talk about what we got to be doing next, because somehow a senior team has deluded itself into thinking they're the only one with the ideas. (laughs) Hogwash. But 
how often does someone sit down with you and say, you know what, Andrew, I've listened to you a couple of times in the meeting. I think you've got a couple of wonderful ideas. What would it take for us to take one of those and turn it from a thought that you have into a reality? So what I just described to you isn't what I set out to do. I was doing it on the fly. No other member of the senior team was involved because they were submitting ideas. So when all, <laughs> when all is said and done, it's like a blind squirrel finding an acorn in the midst of it all. But it comes back to this idea of an inverted organizational chart. Those at the top of the organization should be at the bottom of the chart, leveraging their gifts, talents, and abilities so that those who are on the other side of that can do the ministry and they have an, an opportunity to thrive in an environment that uses their gift, skills, and ability that maximizes it for them. And while they're doing it for them, they, they do it for CARM as well. That's really awesome. What a great experiment too. I, uh, I can't wait to hear the outcome and, and what the final three are. Yeah, it, it's coming. It's coming. I'm not even telling the board. I sent them an overview today to update them on the process, but you don't get to hear the ideas yet. All right. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're just about out of time. My last okay. question for you is, as someone leading an organization like CARM and dealing with some of the stresses and things that I'm sure you deal with on a daily basis, what do you do personally to, to recharge so that you can show up at your best for your team every day? Yeah, so it's um, uh, my, my, my time is in the morning. Okay. Uh, so um, I make sure that I'm spending time in the word, quiet, alone, early, before anyone's up in the house and before I ever hit the door. And I can notice the difference on those mornings where it's rushing. In fact, um, my wife would tell you that she was on the phone. <laughs> There's probably nothing more disturbing to me than hearing the pitter patter of her feet upstairs when I'm downstairs reading, because it means she's going to be coming down and she's going to want to talk and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> and uh, so, so I get, but that's, that's where I get my energy. And I'm worn out at the end of the day. And so um, exercise is regular. So, I'm in the word, quiet time, getting my hand, my head and my mind around what God might have me speak to and address today, those things that are on the calendar and those things that aren't. And then making sure that I'm getting proper exercise and proper nutrition. I try and eat healthy, exercise, and spend the time in the word. And that's what works for me. Great. Thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate you sharing your insights with me. Hey, thanks for having me. And um, I hope something we've talked about today turns out to be uh, productive for what you're working on. I think it will. Before I let you go, um, if one of our listeners hears this and wants to know more about CARM or wants to connect with you, what's the easiest way for people to get in touch? Um, uh, I'm going to give you my phone number. Okay. It's 865-673-6561. I will also give you my email address, brosen at carm.org. Awesome. And um, I will respond to email. The phone number is Kathy, my assistant. And um, I like interacting with folks. Be glad to hear from anybody. Awesome. Thank you again. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.